welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Today's episode, I would like to spend talking about primary colors in terms of additive and subtractive color mixing, as well as optical mixing, and the similarities and differences, perhaps, and a history. This is based on my growing kind of appreciation for how the additive and subtractive color mixing models work together, more so than viewing them as separate and distinct. So to start off, I thought I'd run through the basics of additive and subtractive mixing. Additive mixing could be thought of as light that's entering our eyes is is individual wavelengths of light. It's stimulating different types of cone cells. There's generally three different types of cone cells that respond to red, green, and blue wavelengths. Some people have a fourth type of cone cell that responds to lower wavelengths of uh, violet, but most humans have what's called trichromatic color vision, and we have uh, three cones that respond to the, mainly to those um, red, green, and blue wavelengths. And so we, you could think of it as our minds are adding up the information that's being sent by, via those light-sensitive cells and other light-sensitive cells in our, mind, in our eyes and our retinas. So, for instance, if you're looking at something that's yellow, you're adding up green and red uh, signals, essentially. Well, it's a bit more complicated than that, but that's another episode. But just think of it as that there is no yellow sensitive cone and that we perceive the color yellow through vibrations of green and red cones. So, So our minds are adding up the signal. You're going to find examples of the additive system when you're like looking at a computer screen or a television or any kind of device that's a computer screen, uh, like an iPhone or something like that. So light that's literally being projected right into our eyes and onto our retinas is the additive system. And the subtractive system is where light, incidental light, they refer to it. So let's say sunlight or incandescent light or LED light in your house. The light is striking an object or a plane, and that object is subtracting, it's absorbing some of the light wavelengths. And so hence it's termed to be subtracting wavelengths. And it's reflecting some wavelengths as well. And we see those reflected wavelengths. So you, you so we can identify the apple is red and the school bus is yellow and we're seeing through a subtractive method there. So when we're mixing paint or ink or color pencils or dyes, uh, pastels, any kind of, pretty much any medium that's put onto a flat surface is 
working in the subtractive way. Now, the primaries of these two systems are distinct from each other. In the additive system, red, green, and blue are the primary colors as they relate to the different types of cone cells that I mentioned earlier. And that's commonly shown as RGB. Now, in the subtractive system, there's interesting history, like what the primaries are and how we've come to understand them. I've found that there's, there's two different ways of looking at it. One, that red, yellow, and blue are the primary colors, and another, that yellow, cyan, and magenta are the primary colors based on CMYK printing method. CMYK, and K in that system stands, stands for key, which means black. But how we got to that CMYK, uh, the leading up to that, uh, is kind of interesting to me to think about in terms of the similarities between the additive and the subtractive systems and to try not to see them as so separate from each other. I thought I'd go through a little bit of that history as like an overview here, which is to say, going back to like Aristotle. Aristotle is one of the first that I've been able to identify in the West, what he referred to as species of colors, a species, a color species. That term is similar to what we use as the word hue. So like a color family, a hue. So all the different reds are part of a hue. That's what we call them, a hue, a red. And so Aristotle referred to them as species. And that word species was used for hundreds and if not, um, well, more than a thousand years. So in 350 BCE, Aristotle, there was a book published by him where somebody wrote it. I don't know if he wrote his own stuff. Sense and Sensibility, where he identifies uh, these species of colors as white, yellow, red, purple, green, blue, and black in that specific order. He speculated that the way we perceive color was that there were like these invisible particles of white and black that entered our eye and they stimulated something in our eye. And the more black particles that were present doing the stimulating, you would perceive blues and greens. And the more whites particles, white particles, you would perceive yellow, uh, yellows, reds, uh, purples. So all of his perceived colors were mixtures of ratios of white and black. So he associated the colors that were kind of naturally more dark, like, like greens and blues are generally kind of dark, they can be at least, um, as black. And then, and then as you're getting into the reds and purples, which are still kind of maybe medium, he saw them as, and then yellows can be very light and bright. Um, and then white. So the whites, he was responding to Plato uh, had written this piece in, in 10 years earlier in 360 BCE called the Timaeus, if I'm saying that correctly. And Timaeus, in the Timaeus, uh, Plato speculated, he had this theory called eye extramission theory, which is to say that he thought that the eye, our eyes, emitted a light source and projected light as fire does. And that's how we perceived colors. And so 
part of the reason that he speculated this, it's thought, I think it's kind of documented, is that, let's see here, they noticed like animals like dogs and other animals around fires at night and that their eyes would glow or like the cats, a cat's eyes would glow or cats uh, reflecting green light in their eyes at night which is interesting. So he, he extrapolated out of that that there must be some kind of light source that's coming out of our eyes. What's really happening in that that you may have observed, especially like in flash photography, have you ever noticed like that red eye effect? Like you'll take a family picture and, and everybody's eyes will be like these glowing like devil eyes of this bright red. Well, what's happening is that the light from the flash of the camera is hitting uh, the retina and there's actually blood vessels in the retina that are in front of the cone cells and they go around the cone cells so there's imagine there's like this layer of arteries right and when blood is oxygenated it's bright red and so that red eye effect is literally a reflection of the blood vessels in the person's eye going back out into the camera. So a lot of the cameras will have like a double flash real quick. So that first flash is to cause the pupils to shrink like really quick as quickly as possible because of this bright light to minimize the red eye effect, to minimize the amount of reflected light coming off the retina and back into the camera. In cats, the green color is caused by a layer behind their retinas called the tapetum lucidum. If you're a big cat person like me, that's what's going on there, the tapetum lucidum. So anyway, that theory is called eye extramission theory. And Aristotle came around a little while later, and he said, no, I think it's eye intromission. Like there's something going into the eyes, because if we were projecting light, why is it that we couldn't, we can't see during the nighttime? And so like with one sentence, he basically destroyed Plato's vision theory anyway and and aristotle's book was called on sense and the sensible i think i had that wrong earlier but this tracking of color organization held for 2000 years until newton in 1703 published optics we have characters along the way like well i don't know if i'll get into that but there's let's just say that there's a history to this just to point out that this idea that Colors weren't always thought of as how um, complementary or in a color wheel. They were just seen as individual colors that would mix together to do different things. And if and I, I was going to kind of go down the path of getting into like these medieval um, treatises, which I will in a future podcast. But if you look at some of these things, like Sanini's uh, The Craftsman Handbook. He's basically doing page after page of these like recipes for different colors, almost like a cookbook, like very much like a cookbook, actually. And it's fascinating to read. But that word like species uh, stays with it. The first known example of a print of like a color wheel is in 1629, a guy named Robert Flood, who was a physician who, following in Aristotle's tradition of thinking about color, made a color circle, arrangement of colors in a circle, so that he could compare the various colors of urine 
during his medical examinations. So that, so that kind of blew my mind when I learned that. And then we come to Newton. He, in 1703, publishing Optics, he arranged his colors in a circle as well. He established the spectral band of Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, blue, indigo, and violet. And he arranged his colors in a circle. But rather than giving, making a circle with seven different wedges that were all the same size, he attributed, or he, he came up with these ratios for how big those wedges of the circle should be for each hue. The idea of complementary colors, or colors that would be across from each other on the color wheel in the subtractive method that would mix together to make either black or a very dark gray, uh, 1742 to 1743, a French nat uh, naturalist by the name of Comte de Buffon described what we now know are after images, or what Michel Eugene Chevreul uh, described as his second law of successive contrast in 1839, so 100 years later. And so the idea of an afterimage, we'll do a podcast on afterimages because that's like a whole thing. What Buffon, De Buffon uh, if I'm saying his name correctly, figured out or observed, I should say, he was a naturalist. Well, and there again is another interesting offshoot of like color organi organizational management. Naturalists used to have, going back to like these these color guides or something. So these ways of thinking about color that was like very utilitarian in a systematic way as opposed to how things mixed per se. I don't know if I'm explaining that correctly. But for instance, there's this thing called the Werner's nomenclature of colors that naturalists, it was designed to be a list of, of colors that had numbers assigned to them. And naturalists would go out into the field and be like drawing a plant or a duck or something like that or whatever bird they found or whatever they were drawing. And they were moving quickly, so they would just label the drawings with the colors that referred back to the nomenclature that they had. This, this book, the Werner, Werner's was very popular. Darwin used it. And then when they were back in their studios or back home, they would pull out those drawings and then they would render out these paintings that we know based on basically like the paint by numbers that they've made referring back to the nomenclature. So in the case you're wondering like why would a naturalist have any impact on the story of color theory and the history of why we have an understanding of complementary colors. I think the whole story, a lot of it is do what we think about color theory right now is the results of studies of people from all sorts of different fields. Uh, physicists we've talked about and chemists and um, like, yeah, if you read those medieval texts, they'll give the recipes for the colors and they'll say, this, this color is made by a mineral, grinding a mineral like a rock or something, or that it's organic, so it's like some kind of plant that they're grinding up, or they'll say, this color is made from alchemy. And alchemy, I think, is just what they used for the word chemistry before that word existed. And so, uh, so there's all these fields have informed our understanding of color. So De Buffon 
recognizes or, or observes this idea of after images, which is basically uh, going back to the rods or the cones of our eyes and how they are stimulated by light waves, uh, like electromagnetic energy, like a impacts these cones they're actually like a cone shape and they vibrate and as the cones vibrate they get tired and when certain cones tire the perception of generated by the other remaining cones that are strong become more dominant in vision so you can experiment with this yourself by taking like take any object that you want uh, something colorful and stare at it for as long as you can without blinking, so like over a minute. And then very quickly uh, turn your gaze to like a blank wall or a, a white wall or a white piece of paper or something, and you'll see this kind of like floating shape that is the complementary color of the local color, of the colors you were just looking at. So if you're staring at a red object, you'll see this green floating as an what's called an after image because the red cone cells in your eyes are getting on your retinas are getting tired and exhausted while staring at this red tomato or whatever and so then when you turn away and look at the white you'll see the the white is reflecting all color so it's reflecting green blue and red equally so with your red cones being tired and not perceiving the red that's bouncing off of that white you will see the green and the blue that's being reflected and you'll you'll be seeing what came to be known as uh, the complement of the color that you are looking at in the subtractive method that identification was first made in 1794 by an american physicist named benjamin thomas also known as Count Rumford, which I kind of want to know the story. <laughs> it's kind of a, that's a great name, Count Rumford. But anyway, the Count, the first to identify that shadows, the shadows of, of objects contained the complement color of the light source. And that was in 1794. Uh, around the same time, Thomas Young, who is a British scientist who uh, was the, worked with this guy Helmholtz to establish what's called the Young-Helmholtz theory of trichromatic vision. So like they put it together that there's three cones uh, within the retina. Uh, generally speaking, in, in many people, and that uh, Young actually identified complementary colors as being directly across from each other on the color wheel. So it was through the observation of after images that it was determined, like the ultimate spacing of color, of the colors along in the color wheel, in the color circle. And then it's notable that the first set of primaries that were established in the subtractive system were cyan, magenta, and uh, yellow. So we have a relationship between the additive and subtractive color mixing models in that in the additive system, red, green, and blue primaries, they are the secondary colors in the subtractive system established as magenta yellow 
and cyan, or commonly more like cyan, magenta, and yellow, CMY, and then K for black. But this, the cyan, magenta, and yellow are the secondaries of the additive system. And so the way they read as complementary colors in the subtractive system, we have cyan, whose complement is red. There's then magenta, whose complement is green and yellow, whose complement is blue. So this is different than the way I learned it when I was taught that red, yellow, and blue were the primaries. And I think that the story of where those primaries came into play begins with Goethe and a German painter by the name of Philip Otto Runge. They were friends. Uh, Goethe... Um, we'll have a, an episode on Goethe, but he wrote an instrumental book called Der Farbenlehre, or what's called, uh, translated into English as A Doctrine of Colors or A Theory of Colors, and that was published in 1840. And Goethe names uh, his primaries as red, yellow, and blue, and so does Runge. Uh, and then their secondaries are green, orange, and violet. So that's the first mention that I've been able to find in terms of a color wheel being set up. And uh, like I said, we'll, we'll talk about Goethe in another episode, and, and there's an episode on Newton as well where talking about the spectral band and the relation, you know, the hundred year difference between, 110 year difference between Newton and Goethe's publications. And, and a little bit about uh, the impact of that on how color theory is taught t today, which is to say that uh, through their writings and practice, a split emerged. I don't know how to describe this, but it's, it's almost like a split between the physicists, the people that approached the study of, of color through the spectral additive le uh, lens of, of physics, they maintain that red, green, and blue are the primaries of additive light. And so from a physicist's point of view, from what I understand, that's what's at play. Goethe was a poet, and he was, um, he was a scientist, and he was a, kind of a polymath type but he advocated like a, a more of an approach to understanding color that is more psychological. And so he uh, kind of rejected a lot of that uh, stuff that was like more of the straight science and thinking of it more, or I should say empirical science, not because psychology is a science, right? But I think this might have been, well, I'll have to look up when psychology like actually emerged as a science. But... Let's just say that it's it's at that time in the history, and especially like you know I'm talking like in the West and in Europe and subsequently in North America, there seems to be a split that emerged between the psychology of color and the physics of color, and somewhere in there, Goethe and Runge, yellow and red and blue became their primary colors, and those colors were picked up by like uh, the distill artists 
of the time uh, in later in the 1800, late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, those ideas made their way into the Bauhaus thinking in Germany, where instructors such as Paul Klee and Johannes Itten both identified uh, red, yellow, and blue as their primary colors, and so does Albers. And Albers, even in the interaction of color, goes to mention that kind of split almost in a kind of derogatory way. I don't know. I'll read the quote um, from uh, Interaction of Color. Uh, Albers writes, Since no purpose is served by going into further detail of color systems, it seems worthwhile to distinguish three basically different approaches to color based different interests of the physicist, the psychologist, and the colorist to indicate that only a single difference, whereas the primary colors for the colorists, uh, in parentheses, painters and designers, uh, in parentheses, are, as we know, yellow, red, and blue. The physicist has three other primaries, not including yellow. And the psychologist counts four primaries, the fourth being green, plus two neutrals, white and black. So Albers writes specifically to split that thing into three parts now. We have the colorists, who are the artists and the designers, and then the physicists and the psychologists. And the physicists kind of go back to like that Thomas Young and the Young-Heimholtz trichromatic theory of, of human color vision identifying the, the three light-sensitive cones of the cell, of the, uh, of the retina. Albers then notes the psychologist, and with the addition of green to their list of primary colors. There he is referring to the, a theory known as, um, well, it's opponent color process theory as established by Ewald Herring in 1872. And opponent color process theory has four primary colors, red and green, yellow and blue. And then there's a third pairing of black and white or light and dark. Um, and so the reason it's called opponent color theory is that those pairs, red and green, and then as a pair, and then blue and yellow as a pair, are seen as opponent colors to each other. So in other words, this notion that we perceive red by virtue of there being no green or very little green, and we perceive yellow by, the, by virtue of there being no blue. And so that there, the opponent process is thought to uh, take place after the cone cells are, are vibrating. They're sending messages into the retina where there are other light-sensitive cells. One set of these cells are called ganglion cells. And these ganglion cells are receptive to these opponent colors. So there's groups of ganglion cells that are they are sensitive to yellow and blue, and then there's others that are sensitive to red and uh, green. 
and others that are sensitive to light and dark or, or white and black. And because you have to think of like black, black is a color, of course, but black is also like the absence of light. So these ganglion cells and other cells, and it's, I think it's much more complicated than what I'm talking about here, but those cells take the metadata, you could think of it as this metadata of these vibrations of, from the red, green, and blue cone cells, and they reduce it to on-off firings of yes for blue, no for yellow, yes, there's red, no, there's no green, or there's a lot of green, or there's no red. Or so basically, these, the information gained, taken from the cone cells funnels through, the energy funnels through ganglion cells, and it turns, they convert that energy into electric firings of on and off to our minds. And so our minds, like, once again, they, it, it sums up these firings. So we have an understanding or a perception of what is yellow, it's theorized, based on the lack of blue, as much as the presence of yellow firings, because these colors are diametrically opposed to each other. Uh, there's another, well, at any rate, I won't get into it. There are these impossible colors where evidently there is a color that is red and green and it's not it's well whatever that'll be another podcast red green that's an actual color uh, and it can be perceived but anyway back to what's going on here so early on at least the way I'm reading this we have the physicists who saw this uh, optical effect of red green and blue stimulating the trichromatic uh, theory of vision. And then the psychologist comes along and says, no, there's, there's more to it. There's these opponent colors. And I think that for a while, they were kind of fighting each other as a group. And at least that's how I'm reading it. I've come across, though, this other theory that's, that refers to it as stage theory, where it, it's seeing it more like how I'm describing it, that we're experiencing color in stages as the first sheer data, millions of data points that are created by the cone cells in any instant, and that that data is, is funneled through other cells that reduce it to on and off firings, indicating different colors to our minds, and that our minds add those things up and do a lot of guessing at the same time because it's such simplified and there's so many millions of colors that we can perceive, right? And so we're, our mind, and that's why, you know, you can't say it enough that everybody sees things differently because, because we're guessing at what our mind, what our, the information, adding up this information. So like my past experiences and, and inform the context and how I am, seeing the world and so uh so yeah it gets very complex <laughs> i guess um and so what does this all have to do with primary colors and secondary colors and now i'm kind of lost myself so i gotta figure this out well yeah and so so i guess 
you know, thinking of Albert's book, Interaction of Color, and maybe I'm reading too much into this. So like I said, this is an evolving, this is a developing notion in my mind of trying to pull things together. But part of my existence as an artist and working with people um, and other artists and students and stuff like that is looking for connections and not trying to see how things are different and separate. Maybe they are, but I'm into like finding these connections. So to me, it's interesting that, you know, in the 60s when Albers is publishing this book, that uh, he's taking what was three, yeah, it was in 63, the original. Um, and so he's taking what was, what was two camps kind of bickering with each other about who was right about colors and the nature of color mixing and he's adding the artist as like he's splitting it into a third branch now which i guess is cool i don't know i mean that's the way it was back then and but that's where all of a sudden this this uh idea of red yellow and blue enter into the conversation as primary colors prior to that i i can't see it prior to uh auto rouge and some other uh, Schopenhauer and other thinkers and, and artists that were that impacted the teachings at the Bauhaus. And then, of course, the Bauhaus set up was so influential in how color and approaches to color mixing and, and color perception is taught uh, across all levels of, of teaching in, as far as the arts and design are. You know, and I'm not saying that the primary colors of yellow, uh, blue, and, and red aren't true. It's just that thinking of the, se- the, the subtractive primaries as cyan, magenta, and yellow, which arguably are shades of uh, blue and red, and or yeah, blue, blue and red, cyan and magenta are, are technically like in the blue and red family. They're, but they're a little, it's a little different. And because then that sets up a relationship between blue and yellow where they're complementary, which is kind of pairs up with uh, the opponent process uh, theory a little bit, you know, of how we're actually perceiving color. So it's, it's a question of how color is mixed to make colors and then how that, how that painting or that, that, that print or that photograph is perceived is through the additive system. And so maybe I'll, maybe I'll wrap it up here for now. And I had taught, I had mentioned getting into optical color mixing, but I'm already at the, I'm pushing 40 minutes here. And, um, um, but yeah, so, so there, I guess that's just an outline of, of my thinking and, and where I'm kind of arriving at, in terms of not exactly a conclusion, but a set of questions that are where I'm looking for the connections. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested and follow Chromosphere, the Color Theory Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again 
for their production, consulting, and editing.